You're listening to the Alan Gray Podcast. I'm Misha Townsend, an Umbrella Fund Specialist at Alan Gray and your host for this episode. The aim of this podcast is to share different perspectives on topical issues that affect advisors and investors and to give you a sense of how we view the world and what we think about when building portfolios from the bottom up. Early last year, National Treasury announced its intention to amend the retirement fund system with the dual aim of giving investors limited access to retirement fund assets to help them cope with short-term emergencies and improving the long-term preservation of retirement savings. The proposed new structure is called the two-pot retirement system. In this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Richard Carter. Richard has been with Alan Gray for 15 years and is the head of assurance and a director of Alan Gray Life and Alan Gray Investment Services. Richard and I will unpack the current issues facing retirement savers and how the proposed changes aim to produce better outcomes. Richard, you've been at Alan Gray for 15 years. What first brought you to Alan Gray and what's kept you here so long? Sure. Um, It was 15 years ago, so you're really asking me to to, uh, to think back, but actually, I can still remember, you know, quite clearly. The biggest thing was what the company stood for. I really wanted to work for a company that was at the top of its game, that put clients first, that had a ethical way of doing business, something that I could, you know, buy into, and that was the best. And that was the that was the thing that drew me, and it's been what's kept me. I've really enjoyed my time at Alan Gray. I've got to work on different things. But more than that, I've really found that this is a place where I can align with with the values, with what we believe in, and with putting our clients first and doing a great doing a great job for them. You've been interested in retirement reform since you were a student. What drew you to the subject? I think firstly, it's so very, very important. I think it's important both to the individual citizens of the country that they can get to retirement with money to live off. But it also has an economic impact because the savings of the retirement industry, you know, are a really big part of powering the economy. And it's also fascinating because the incentives and changes to incentives really impact people's behavior and what they do. So it's complicated, it's fascinating, but it's really, really important. Amazing. So speaking of things being complicated, So there are lots of moving parts and things to still be determined. But in a nutshell, can you elaborate a little bit more on what this two-part retirement system is? So the main idea is that going forward, every month and every time a person contributes to their retirement account, the money will be split into two parts. One part will go into an account which is more flexible, allows for withdrawals, is really intended to provide emergency access so that people can get access to that money without having to quit their jobs. And the other part, the two-thirds, which is the bigger portion, would go into a part which is designed to provide income in retirement. So at the moment, you know, all the money goes into one big account, and then it gets split at retirement into a cash lump sum and a portion that has to provide income. The idea with this system would be to make that split more explicit and make the split at contribution stage rather than at the at the end when you retire. So you'd have these two separate accounts and there'd be different rules applying to to the two accounts. So ultimately splitting out these accounts, what is Treasury trying to achieve? Why are they making these changes to the retirement system? 
I think they're trying to solve two problems at the same time. So the first problem uh, that I alluded to there is the access for emergencies other than, you know, losing your job. And so, you know, this this idea that, you know, I might fall on hard times and still need to access some of this money that is in the in the pension fund, as I said, even though I haven't lost my job. So that emergency access and improving accessibility. But on the flip side, at the moment, especially when people lose their jobs, they often and are able to take the entire amount out of their pension fund, which means that from, you know, with this other aim in mind, which is to provide a retirement income, they're having to start from scratch again. And so many people get to retirement with just far too little built up. So the idea that Treasury has is to try and tackle both problems, improve the short-term access to, to some of the funds, but improve the preservation you know, of the other portion, which will in the long run improve retirement incomes for people, you know, in retirement. Why now? Why the timing of making changes now? Has Treasury given any insight into their thoughts along that line? That's a really interesting question. The, you know, some of these issues have been in the system for a very, very long time. And it's been commented that, you know, that we have this this outcome where many people are getting to retirement with balances that are just too small. One thing that really brought this into sharper focus was the the COVID pandemic and, you know, the pressures on, on the system and the pressures on people who, you know, were just found that they they didn't have the the, the money to put food on the table because they'd either lost jobs or they had gaps in employment. And around the world, what we saw was retirement fund systems under stress and and being utilized to provide emergency funding. And this really, I think, increased the the pressure to find a solution to some of these problems. So these are not new problems. COVID didn't create them, but certainly the COVID pandemic and the and the response to it definitely increased the pressure on on retirement systems all over the world. So it sounds like these are quite big changes and there will be quite a few things that are happening. When are these changes supposed to actually take place? So currently the implementation date is set for March 2024. There's still a lot to be done between now and then, both in terms of getting the legislative changes finalized. There's some details which are still not completely settled. There's recently been a period of public consultation where people could respond and, you know, many views were put forward. So Treasury is obviously digesting those um, and will still need to publish final legislation. And then there'll need to be a period of implementation where the administrators that administer pension funds can go and make the necessary changes, you know, to get ready to administer the system. And there'll need to be, you know, quite extensive communication because, as you said, you know, it's very, very significant and you know, ordinary members need to understand how these changes affect them. So there's still a lot that needs to be done. And March 2024 is you know, arguably ambitious, but that's the date that we have at the moment. And you've mentioned that there are details that still need to be worked out. There's things we still need clarity on. Can we talk a little bit more about what are some of those details that we need to understand? Sure. Given the first example that comes to mind is something that many people have you know, argued for, which is to have some form of seeding. So where some portion of the money that's already been saved in the, let's call it the old system or the current system, is used to seed these pots 
So you could think of that as a transfer of some of the money that's already saved up in the old system into the new system to, to sort of get it going with a bit of a kickstart. There's some people who are very against that and others who think it's a great idea. And then even if you do think it's a great idea, there's the details of exactly, you know, how much should be seeded? Are there any conditions? Uh, does it apply to all kinds of funds? So that's a, that's a good example of something. It might sound like a lot of detail, but you really have to get these things, you know, buttoned down and get them right from the get-go. We've spoken about the one-third access pot or savings pot. Will there be any restrictions around there has to be a minimum that you take or how often you can take from that pot? Yes, we do um, expect um, that there will be minimums. The minimum that's been envisaged is that there'll be a RAND minimum that you have to take. And that's just to stop pension fund administrators from having to become sort of banks and processing you know, high volumes of small transactions. Understand that that will probably be set at around 2,000 Rand. So if you don't have 2,000 Rand in your savings account, you won't be able to take anything um, and you'll only be able to take out of that account once a balance of, of 2,000 Rand or more has been, has been achieved. And then the intention is that you can only withdraw once per year. So if you've taken out what you know, whatever the amount was, two thousand or more out of that account, that you'll have to wait twelve months before you can withdraw again. The idea is to try and prevent there being some sort of use it or lose it mentality. You know, if if I know that if I take money out now, I'm going to have to uh, wait twelve months before I can take again. But I also know that I can take money out at any time. Then there's no pressure to take the benefit now or lose it. If I don't take it today, it's there tomorrow. And I should only take it when there is an, an actual emergency um, or, or pressure. And as I said, once I do take it, I'm going to have to wait 12 months till I can take it, take it again. That's how it's envisaged that it will work. So yes, there's definitely a, a minimum amount that needs to be taken. Will that 2,000 Rand minimum grow by inflation? Well, um, I would expect that it should. I mean, that would be the, the logical thing. Otherwise, gradually over time, it becomes a, a lesser and lesser amount. Of course, there are many of these kind of, of limits. Think about the withdrawal tax table and, and the tax brackets. I understand those haven't changed in about eight years. So while we would expect that the number should, uh, there's, no, you know, there's no certainty that it will. We really don't know how that will work out. And I imagine that there's going to be some tax changes or potential tax implications with this new system. How's that going to work? Yes, uh, that is actually quite a big change, is the change on the tax approach on withdrawal. So at the moment, when you um, withdraw money, that means you're exiting a pension fund. There's a separate tax table and tax system that applies to that withdrawal. And any amounts that you withdraw over your working lifetime are added up and taken into account at retirement when you then retire. Those tax tables are again different, but the previous withdrawal amounts are taken into account. The idea here for the amounts taken out of this savings pot or, or access pot, whatever name it finally gets, is that those amounts that you withdraw would be seen as income. So if you've contributed to a a pension fund, a retirement annuity, for example, you know, you get a tax deduction equal to your marginal tax rate. If you then take money back out, it's a negative tax deduction. You pay tax at your marginal tax rate and those two numbers should offset each other and have no impact on your tax bill. It's a reasonably easy thing to say. It's quite a big deal for pension funds because they're now having to uh, deduct effectively income tax on any withdrawals, and, and that's not currently how it works. So it's a significant change, 
but you know, Treasury believe that should be a, a fairer tax system when we look at withdrawals from pension funds. So it seems as if there is there is quite a lot happening, still quite a lot to be discussed and finalized. Are there any potential risks or issues or problems that you can see with these proposed changes? When you make a change of this scale, there's always a number of risks that you need to worry about. The unintended consequences and, and implementation risk of making whole-scale design changes to a system. You know, we hope that by the time the final details have been ironed out, everything's been very well thought through, everything's been considered, but you're always worried about, you know, what have we missed and not thought about and what could go wrong. There's the implementation phase itself, even if the system is very cleverly designed and um, and everything's been thought of, there's a really big implementation phase for pension funds that now need to administer things that they haven't done yet. So very big implementation risk. And then of course, when you change a system, there'll be changes in behavior. So how will people behave in future under this new system. And and I suppose the worry there is that people might view this savings pot or access pot as just money that can be taken in any circumstance. And so they might take every opportunity to to take the money out and use it for things that are are not really um, emergencies per se. And and that's fine. That's, That's their choice. But then uh, if that's the position they find themselves in, and then there's a real emergency, and there's nothing left, the pensions funds funds gone, and you, you know people might have different sources of funds, but if that's all you've got, you now have nothing left in your savings account, and and there's an emergency. Where do you turn? And and I think that can still be a risk. This you know the behaviour of people under the new system. It's it's all very well if it works as envisaged and people get to retirement with, with more money saved up and there's access for emergencies along the way. But if it's um, overused, as it were, it, it, it can be less successful. So you were speaking about the behavioral risks or potential behavioral risks. Is there any guidance that's going to be given about what constitutes an emergency? Will individuals have to prove it's an emergency or how is that savings pod or access pod or whatever it ends up being called actually being managed? That's a good example of something that will really still need to be completely finalized. We think that there'll be, you know, very few restrictions other than sort of restrictions on how often you can access the money and how much you can take, for example. So there would be quite potentially a minimum amount because it's not meant to be a bank account. But I think more important than the restrictions is going to be the education and the communication. That's going to be crucially important that this is explained properly and that the right messaging uh, gets out in terms of of what the money's for and what's available and what's not available but we don't think that there will be you know significant sort of restrictions or things that need to be proved or an involvement for the fund to decide whether and a withdrawal that a member wants to make is permissible or not permissible. Um, you can imagine just how difficult that would be for, for pension funds who are not in that business to to suddenly have to make all of those decisions. So don't think that those kind of restrictions will be in play. And then you also spoke about the potential implementation risk. So mm. when the actual pension fund administrators are updating their systems or looking at how this is going to work practically, do you see there being any changes to the industry from the administration side. So as an example, we've been seeing a trend over the past few years from standalone funds moving into umbrella fund structures. Do you see this enhancing that change or any anything else like that? 
when thinking about that, you need to think about all the changes that come along. And I think that you know, this is admittedly a quite a big one, but this is it's just one more set of changes that uh, funds are having to deal with. And I think the volume and the frequency of changes must surely weigh on a fund and an administrator's mind and calculation as to as to whether it's worth their while to to carry on or whether it's better to uh, consolidate and, and join up with with another fund. So these are fairly substantial changes, and I'm sure some funds will look at them, and this might well be the cherry on the top that says, actually, it's better for us to amalgamate and or join an umbrella or, or whatever they choose choose to do. But I don't think this will be you know, the single cause of that. I think the burden of change, I'm sure this won't be the last change uh, that comes along that a pension fund administrator has to deal with. And, and it's a burden and it has costs. So yes, I'm sure it will factor in funds calculations, but, but really I, I wouldn't have any idea as to whether it will push funds over the edge and into making that sort of a decision. And then if this access pot or savings pot is being used for emergencies. So potentially you're accessing this maybe quite far in advance of your retirement. Does this mean that that pot of money needs to be managed or invested differently to the other two thirds or your previous money that you have saved? Yes, there's been some discussion on this, on whether there needs to be a different investment strategy for the access pot versus the retirement pot. My thoughts on this would be that the two pots would be in, in, invested in the same way and that they shouldn't be seen of as completely separate. They're not separate funds. They are really two portions of an overall um, retirement account. And as long as the final proposals in terms of you know how much access is allowed and how frequently that access is allowed, as long as those are reasonable, then the requirements on pension funds to provide that sort of liquidity uh, shouldn't be any more than what they have to allow for today. You know, pension funds today have to pay out, you know, benefits to to people who who have early retirement or who resign, etc. So liquidity is already needed and has to be paid out on a on a regular basis out of out of funds today. So this changes that a little bit, but I don't think it changes the overall sort of profile of a of a fund's liabilities. And so we wouldn't expect that it makes a big difference to the investment requirements. Um, it's our understanding that Regulation 28, which which governs what a pension fund can invest in, won't be changing, that it will stay as is, and that Regulation 28 will still continue to apply to the overall member account. So in other words, even though there are you know two separate parts, the entirety of the two parts would need to be invested in accordance with Regulation 28, rather than having different requirements for, for the one or the other. Then with the remaining two-thirds that stays saving for retirement, how is this supposed to improve people's retirement outcomes? So the the intention is that gradually over time, the balances of people who get to retirement age will, will be higher. And uh, one way to think about it is think about the income that that balance can then buy, that be your pension, whether that's uh, you know bought as a pension or whether it's it's taken out of a living annuity, and compare that pension to the income you were earning just before you retired. That's the replacement ratio. And so the intention is that those replacement ratios will increase. Basically, people will get to retirement with bigger and bigger balances, and as they do so, you know it will fund bigger incomes. Uh, in retirement than than what the system is is funding today. And then you spoke there about ill health retirement. Mm. Will the two-pot system change anything for other types of exits from a fund? So maybe resignation or retrenchment or 
other instances where you don't make normal retirement age? As it's envisaged and and my understanding of what was put forward in the legislation that's been commented on is that where it's a early form of retirement, so for example, consider retirement due to disability, you know, that's a retirement. And so the benefits and the rules that apply at retirement would apply. In other words, the one third pot would be available in cash, whatever's left. The two thirds pot would have to be used to provide an income. There has been some discussion and some pushback on what should be available on retrenchment. As the two-part system was envisaged, you know, that one-third part is the part that's there for emergencies. And so one could view retrenchment as an emergency um, and whatever's left in that one-third part would be would be available and the two-thirds part wouldn't. Of course, that's something that still needs to be finalized. That's something that, you know, there's, there's some discussion on. I think it's important to remember that in the early years, um, the most important part will be the vested part. It won't be these two new parts because all of the accumulated savings to date will still be in the vested part and the vested part will still be subject to all of the rules that are in place today. So the last big change that we really saw in the retirement fund space was March last year with Mm. what was called the harmonization. So bringing in line provident funds with pension funds. So obviously that had a much bigger impact on provident funds as those were the funds that had their rules changing. With regards to the two-part system, is this affecting all funds equally or are there certain funds that are excluded from these changes? It's our understanding that it will affect all funds. I can immediately think of two good examples where where it might be different. The first is sort of some of your defined benefit funds. So by defined benefit, I'm you know I'm referring to those funds where each member doesn't have their own account with their own contributions, which grow with investment return, but the fund promises a certain level of benefits. And in order to deliver those benefits, contributions are paid into the fund by the employer, which satisfies you know the cost of providing the benefits in aggregate. That means that those contributions aren't directly linked to one employee or another, and the employee's rights in the fund are are all stated in terms of the benefit they will be paid, in terms of income and cash at retirement, et cetera, rather than in terms of the contributions that have been made. And the entire formulation of the two-pot system um, is in terms of contributions rather than in terms of the eventual benefit. So this is more of a technicality than sort of a fundamental point where one would say, well, defined benefit funds shouldn't, for example, benefit from this from this change. It just means it's more complicated to get right and thought needs to be applied as to as to how to make this work for those kind of funds. While the intention is to include defined benefit funds, um, and one expects that all defined benefit funds will be included, there's more that needs to be figured out in terms of, you know, a, a member in a defined benefit fund doesn't really have a contribution that's theirs per se. And so how do you split that contribution into into two parts? Um, that needs to be thought through very, very carefully. And then the other example you referred to, harmonization, is is um, members who were in provident funds um, at the date of harmonization, there, there was already a dispensation where uh, those over you know, a certain age would be excluded and not have to harmonize because they were quite close to you know, normal retirement age. And so it, it was felt you know, not to include them and have to have them you know, cope with a new regime in the last few years before retirement. So it would make perfect sense to continue to exclude 
those members, but it gets a little bit complicated and some of those details still need to be pinned down. So if you were in a provident fund um, at the harmonization date and excluded from the requirement to harmonize, then you'll probably still be excluded from the requirement to now have your contribution split into two parts because that would that would make far more sense. We spoke about defined benefit funds and we've been speaking about umbrella funds, so your pension and provident funds. Does this affect retirement annuities as well? I mean, interestingly, the current rules for retirement annuities are so very different from the situation that people who are in occupational funds experience. Because with a retirement annuity, there's no employer per se. When you, you know, resign from your employment or or, or retrenched or, or leave employment in any way, it doesn't affect your your RA. Your RA membership carries on, and so and so no benefits are ever really payable in an RA, you know, before you retire, and and so yes, this is going to be a major change for for RAs. Um, RAs will also have to split contributions into the new two parts, and so for the first time, there will be you know ability for members who are in RA funds to to make withdrawals from their RA be- before they retire. So this is a very big change for retirement annuities. We've spoken a little bit about the members, what might be changing on their side. And we also spoke about the administrators and the potential changes to their systems and the implementation risk. What about financial advisors and consultants? What might they be worrying about or thinking about or have to change? I'm sure that there's quite a lot that they're going to have to worry about. You know, every time the system gets more complicated, there's more factors to take into account. So now we potentially have a system where on taking money out of a fund, there's different tax um, regimes depending on, you know, where the money's coming from. So if you take money out of the vested pot, you, we understand that the current tax rules will apply. If you take money out of your new savings pot, it's going to be taxed as income. So right there is a complexity um, that an advisor will need to to think through and consider. Then there's also what does this mean in terms of emergency funding, you know, in in the current situation, if you lose your job, you've got, you know, your full pension fund potentially to, to fall back on. That's no longer going to be the case. So will that change the approach to how much I need to set aside for an emergency? So th- those are some of the kinds of things. You mentioned consultants. And when I think about benefit consultants, the whole topic of communication, again, you know, comes to mind is what will they need to think of in terms of the communication strategy to members? What do members need to know about? And so I think this is going to be a very big event you know, for, for financial planners and advisors in general. Yeah. The potential complexity we've spoken about a few times, and you also said how important it's going to be that the member communication around this is, is handled quite well. Do you see this as prompting more people to take up financial advice or maybe employ a financial advisor? in order for them to actually understand what's happening with these various pots and these changes? That's an interesting question and an interesting perspective. You know, I think that people need financial advice to make sense of their financial affairs, you know, broadly. And the retirement world is already so complex that I think that, you know, most people are past the point where, where they can make sense of everything and, you know, make all their financial decisions themselves. Now, that's not true for everyone, of course, but I think that this just adds further complexity. Whether it will actually, you know, cause more people to feel that they they need advice, I'm not sure. As I said, I think for many people, they're past that point 
already. This is just one more thing. And if there is going to be this extra complexity in the system, is this going to bring about extra cost as well? And if so, who are we seeing is going to actually Mm. be picking up this cost? All the change that comes along brings extra cost. And often it's not understood exactly and pinned back exactly. You know, we make this change, therefore it costs this much. It just, it's part of the burden that administrators need to bear and then they need to charge for that. So funds pick that up, but ultimately it comes out of the savings pool. It comes out of members' benefits in the very long run. And so, yes, I'm absolutely sure this will, you know, increase costs. And it will definitely increase costs in the short term with the implementation. The question, though, is what will the impact be over the very long term? Ideally, and and sort of the optimist in me says, well, well, I hope that in the long term, this leads to increased balances and increased ability to spread those costs over, over more rands, and on average should lead to, you know, lower costs per rand of assets in the system. But that's a very long-term view. In the short term, you know, all of these changes are going to need to be put in place and there won't be any immediate increase in, in assets in the system to pay for them. And when you speak about the very long term, how long are you guessing or thinking that it will be before we can actually measure, is this system working? Is it bringing about the changes that Treasury hopes for? So I think one should start to see the benefits and and the changes in the system over just a few years. So, you know, over the first five to 10 years, one should be able to see, you know, what has been the change, what is the change in the amount of benefits that people are taking out before retirement, and what is the change in terms of members' balances. But it will be a very long time before the changes are fully worked through. At the extreme for, you know, a member who's just starting out in employment today, they're only going to retire in in 40 years. Who knows whether that will be more or less in 40 years' time, but that's the sort of time frame. So it's going to take a very long time for it to work through fully, but I would imagine that over the first, you know, we should know within five years whether it's working. Is this truly a radical change? Where has Treasury come up with this concept? Are there other countries that have done similar things that we've borrowed from? Or do we have examples of this translating in other countries that has worked successfully? There are so many different variations on pension fund saving systems all over the world. And this concept of splitting contributions into multiple pots with different purposes and different rules uh, is not unique and not, uh, not new. It has been tried. It has been tried elsewhere and from what I understand quite successfully. So it's not brand new in that sense, but you know, it's the combination of all the features of a system that make it unique. You know, our employment situation, the fact that in our funds there's, you know, full access to benefits on on resignation. That's not particularly common. And then the balance of what's provided by the state versus what's provided for privately. And when you start taking all the features into account, then you end up, you know, with a description of a system that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. South Africa's retirement system is its own. And so some similarities, but I don't think there's another South Africa out there with the same pension fund system where they've made these changes and we can just go and have a look and say, see, this was wonderfully successful. Just for people who are listening, maybe this is the first time that they've really been getting to grips with this two-pot system. Maybe they haven't been following the updates so far. Is there anything else that they might want to consider or think about that we haven't spoken about yet? The one thing is that 
the system's not about to be implemented. You know, we are talking about something that's a, a few years away. And when it, on the day it's implemented, you know, nothing changes immediately because everyone will still have, you know, the money that they've saved up to that point in time. And those rights and those benefits uh, get preserved in what's called a, a vested pot or a vested account. And so even as time passes and as new contributions are made into the new system, you know, whatever they've previously accumulated in the, in the old system is, is still there. So I think I would say that, you know, there's no, there's no need to panic. There's no need to rush out and make changes. This is something that is going to come along. It's good to know about it. But really until it's sort of pending implementation, there's nothing that a person really needs to do. And in fact, we, we always say, you know, the most important thing when it comes to saving for retirement is not to delay, to get on with it. Um, because the more time passes that you haven't saved enough, the harder it is you know, to, to solve that problem in future. And then we spoke that there's currently another proposal out and uh, Treasury are speaking to industry and, and gathering views and, and feedback. Have they given a date as to when we're expecting a next update or a next version of the proposals? So what happens or the process has happened is, is draft legislation's been tabled. So all of the public comments that have been made have been made on a set of draft legislation and Treasury's basically working through all of that commentary that's been received. And, you know, we touched earlier on some of the themes that have, you know, been been put forward by by people who've reviewed this. They then need to take that into account and and publish the next set of of legislation, which will hopefully be either final or close close to final. I'm not actually completely sure what the you know what the process for that is and and when we'll next see you know a next iteration that will take into account you know the changes that they might have made in response to to what's been put forward. Well, hopefully this gets people talking more about retirement, thinking more seriously about what they need to do to make sure that they are in a position to retire comfortably when when they're older. Is there anything that, in your opinion, investors should do in general to make sure that they do have good retirement outcomes? Sure, there's a, there's a number of things, but I think the most important thing is to have a plan and to save for retirement. I think the thing that uh, undermines that is putting it off for another day. There's no time like the present to to get on with it. So that would be the most important thing. And then once you have a plan and you're in your saving, you need to stick to it. So you need to avoid, you know, taking out the money prematurely because that is incredibly detrimental. And then I suppose it's really important to think about as part of that plan where the money saved, make sure that it's, in, you know, invested appropriately. And I think then you've got the key ingredients of a good outcome. Thank you to my colleague Richard Carter for joining me. We delved into the challenges facing the retirement system and explained various aspects of the proposed two-part retirement system, including its objectives, some of the challenges it faces, and how it may lead to better outcomes for retirement savers. We always welcome your feedback, suggestions, and questions, so please drop us an email on info at if you would like to share your perspectives. Finally, please remember that Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the T's and C's, explore the latest insights, and to find out more about our investment offering, please visit alangray.co.za. 
Until next time, I'm Misha Townsend from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thank you for listening.